So we're going to be looking at this passage. Like I said, it's one of these very famous stories. You got that recorder? Is that working? Hey, I have good news. Um, after two years of not being able to add any episodes to the podcast, the RUF at Belmont podcast, um, and after about the fourth person to try to help me, finally, I was able to add two more episodes today. I don't think you can find them on the iTunes store yet, but if you're subscribed to the RUF at Belmont podcast, the new episodes are there, and I'd know what to do to get the rest of it working now. What? Yeah, not yet, but I know how to fix that. I know how to, yeah, it's still a Buddhist podcast. I know why that is, and I know what I need to do to be able to change it. I have to email a guy who can transfer an account to me. But we're, zoom, we're zeroing in on it, and at least I can get new episodes on there. So, that's awesome. All right, so we're looking at this story, David and Goliath. If there's, you know, probably two stories that people know about the Bible. Everybody knows about the woman caught in adultery and how Jesus says that he is without sin, cast the first stone. Everybody knows that story. A lot of people uh, put their hopes in that story in a lot of ways, um, even though that story isn't actually probably an original story in the Bible. Um, and we can talk over coffee if I just ruined your life by telling you that. I think it's an authentic story about Jesus, but it's just not in the earliest manuscripts, and everybody knows that. Um, Anyway, but the second most popular story, probably, I would say, um, is this story of David and Goliath. If you ever went to any Sunday school class, if you ever heard any kind of Bible story as a child, it probably was this one. And I would bet that you probably heard it incorrect. I, I would bet that you probably heard this story told incorrect. Um, and if, even if I did a little experiment here, if we had time and I had all of you take out a piece of paper and write down what this story is, like tell me this story, I suspect that you would not do a very good job as far as what the Bible says this story is and what it's about. Because the way we hear this story and the way we remember this story tends to leave out the most important parts of this story. And I, I hope to show you why that matters tonight, because it really does matter how we interpret the stories of the Bible. And sometimes it's the stories that are the most familiar ones that are uh, the ones that we really need to look at again and see if we really have caught what they're saying. Now, I've got kind of a humorous story about, about this particular story, Dave and Goliath. When I was in seminary, my Hebrew professor delighted to point out to us, um, some of you know this, I know... Um, uh, Kelsey Spinato will know this because she studied Hebrew. But the, in, in the Hebrew text of the Bible, they actually don't have the vowels, just the consonants. And it's interesting that in this story of David and Goliath, that the consonants for forehead are also the same consonants for kneecap. And it's also interesting that all of the archaeological evidence we have of Philistine armor, there's no, there's no way to hit somebody in the forehead, but there is a vulnerability at the kneecap. So I remember our professor telling us this story one time, saying, you know, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really change the story. The point of the story is that David hits him. He kind of falls to the ground, and then David actually, it says in the text, cuts off his head, and that's how he actually kills him. So if you've ever seen a picture of this story where David, where Goliath gets hit in the, in the forehead and he kind of staggers, and then he falls down dead, 
that's not what the story says, actually. Now, but I remember my professor saying, but don't tell anybody about this because it'll just upset them. And maybe I just did that. But let me tell you about a time that I did that even worse. I used to um, live with this friend, uh, this, this friend of mine. He was, he was a Christian musician for a while, a guy named Wes King. And um, we used to actually have this time, which we'll do at one of these again coming up. But we used to regularly have a time. We would gather at Wes and Fran's house down in Franklin, and people would come ask questions about whatever they wanted. We actually did it every week, and it was a really cool thing. And I love to do that sort of thing with students. We will do that thing again. But... Back then, I remember Wes and his wife went on this trip to Israel, right? And this is when he was still on Christian radio a lot. Um, he's had a lot of health problems, almost died from cancer and whatnot. So he's kind of out of the spotlight now. But he was a pretty big, well-known Christian artist back in the day. Which by the day, I mean like the 80s, you know, in the 90s, you know, when you guys were like little, right? Anyway, so I'm telling, Wes is telling me about all these cool things he learned on his trip to Israel. I say, well, you know, that's interesting because actually the Hebrew could be translated, kneecap rather than forehead but don't tell anybody Wes because it's you know it just upsets people if you tell them that and it doesn't really change the point of the story it's just sort of a little fun fact all right so a, a few weeks later I'm driving to church and back then I had about a 30 minute drive to church because I went to a church down in Franklin and I turn on the uh, Christian radio station and I hear Wes King being auto interviewed now this is back when nobody had cell phones and I hear him talking about his experience in Israel and about how he learned all these amazing things, but he's kind of scattering in his remembrances. And then it's almost like one of those things you're sort of hearing it in slow motion and you're like, don't, don't, don't. And he says, and you know, one of the things I learned is that, um, you know, David actually didn't hit Goliath in the forehead, but he hit him in the kneecap. And, and the guy on the radio is like, what? You know, what are you talking about? And he couldn't remember anything about that. Or where he heard that from, he, it was just sort of jumbled up in his memory. And boy, I could t you could tell like the phone bank just lit up. People calling, and I'm sitting here listening on the radio, like trying to go as fast as I possibly can to get to church, to get to a phone, to see if I can call in. As people are calling and saying, well, my Bible says forehead, and they're, they're quoting, you know. And people are like, their faith is just like disappearing, you know. As, as, as this show goes on and on and on. And, of course, I could not get to a phone before the show was over. Now, listen, it really doesn't matter that much to this story whether it's forehead or kneecap. It really doesn't. It really doesn't. It actually, you know, your, your English translations are the word of God as they reflect well the Hebrew and the Greek originals. Okay? So that doesn't matter. But you know what? This story matters, and the truth of it matters. The kneecap, the forehead thing, it really doesn't matter very much. But the Sunday school version versus the biblical version matters a great deal. Because this is not so much a story about us and how we are to fight the giants in our life and how we're to be like David and emulate him and sort of kind of screw up our courage as best we can and believe that we'll be able to triumph over insurmountable odds. That's not what this story is about at all, and I hope to show you that tonight. This is not a story about moralism. This is not just sort of a Christianized version of Aesop's fables. It's not a little moral tale. It is a vital part of redemptive history. Do you know that phrase, redemptive history? Redemptive history means that the Bible has a grand narrative. It starts somewhere and it goes to a goal. And there are important key developments along the way. 
This is the way we need to understand the Bible. All the Bible stories are best understood in light of the grand meta-narrative of redemptive history. And actually, unless you get that, you'll distort every story in the Bible and make it about what you need to do rather than about what God is doing. So forehead, kneecap, doesn't matter very much. But whether this story is about what you need to do or about what God does matters a great deal. Let's look at this passage. Now, it's actually a long story, and I might summarize some parts of it, but start up at verse 1 of chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're going to start. uh, Actually, I'm going to start at verse 3. Basically, the Philistines, who are the sea people, very strong enemy of God's people, are on one side of this valley, and God's uh, arm, Israel's armies are on this other side of this valley. That's the situation when we pick up in verse 3. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. It's a valley that's about 12 to 14 miles away from Jerusalem, by the way. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and, on a, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, to the armies of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are not you the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill you, kill him, sorry, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul, now Saul, remember, is the king of Israel who's a head taller than everybody else. He's supposed to be their fighting guy. Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons and in Saul's time, He was old and well advanced in years. David, jump down to verse 14, was the youngest of these sons. The three oldest followed Saul. In other words, they were there in the army. But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. So he takes them some food. Uh, Verse 20, jump down there. Early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions. Every morning they'd go out to their battle positions. They were shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and greeted his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man, talking about Goliath, keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. 
He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. Then there's this little bizarre little thing where David's oldest brother kind of mocks him and says, basically, you're a lazy shepherd. You know, why are you even up here? And David says, look, let me talk. All right. I love that. It's just sort of this real kind of story. Like it really happened. There's no be no reason to stick that in there. But jump down to verse 31. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul. Saul's the king of Israel. And Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant, meaning me, I will go and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy. And he's been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion... Or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock. I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I can't go in these, he said. I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, she said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead or the kneecap, depending how you take that. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. And then the Israelite army pursues them. I know that's kind of a long story, but I wanted to read it because if I just summarized it, 
I think you would still kind of hear it the way you've always heard it. But this is a really fascinating story. It's, again, so familiar that it's difficult to hear it afresh. But that's our goal tonight, is to hear this story afresh, hear what it's actually saying to us. And to do that, we first need to begin to sort of zoom out a little bit and see the big picture. Do you understand the significance of this story in the big picture of what God is doing and telling us about in the Bible? You actually have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and to to verse 15 in Genesis chapter 3 if you really want to understand what the Bible is all about. If you remember, the Bible opens with the story of God creating man and woman, to be with him. Not just to be his little worker bees, but to be with him. The Bible talks about their relationship as one in which they walked and talked with God in the cool of the day. It's a beautiful, um, refreshing scene of rich relationship. And yet, the man and the woman turn away from God, turn to what they want to do rather than the way God has called them to live And brokenness comes in every way. Where there was a beautiful, rich relationship between the man and the woman, now they're blaming each other, blame shifting. Oh, the man says, this woman, God, that you put here, she gave me the the fruit and I ate it. So the relationship between the man and the woman is broken. The relationship between God and mankind has been broken. Where they were naked and unashamed before him, now they're hiding in the bushes. And it's a pretty pitiful scene because they're using these leaves, these fig leaves. Fig leaves are huge, but they have huge holes. And it's a really graphic picture about the inadequacy of the ways we try to cover ourselves. So it's just a mess. But in the midst of this mess... As God speaks a curse upon the serpent who stands there in the place of Satan, the one who is the adversary, the enemy of God and his kingdom, God speaks a curse that is at the same time a promise and really the programmatic verse of the entire Bible. He says this to the serpent, that I will put enmity between the seed of the woman and the serpent. That where Adam and Eve had allied themselves against God with his adversary, God says, I will not let that alliance stand. I will break that alliance by my grace. And instead, I will put enmity, I'll put warfare where you've tried to put peace. The first thing that grace does is it interrupts us. And it says, you will not get away with the way you want to live. And God in his grace says, there will come a seed, the seed of the woman. And in case you don't know, in Greek and Hebrew both, the word seed is also the word sperm. And so the the seed line of the Messiah, how is God going to keep this promise of the seed of the woman one day crushing the head of the serpent? Well, for one thing, the seed line has to be preserved. And the rest of the story of the Old Testament is really, I, I guess the drama of the story is whether or not God's promise will be kept. And the two great threats, the two great threats to that promise are all of these enemies, whether they be Egyptians or Philistines or Babylonians that want to wipe out the people of God. In wiping out the people of God, if Satan can accomplish that, he wipes out the seed line of the Messiah and he wipes out all hope. And so that's really the way you need to understand this story. This isn't just a random story about a little boy who's able to win a great victory because he's so skilled with the sling. 
This is really a story about God preserving the promise by preserving the seed line, by delivering his people when they had no hope. They have a king. They wanted a king, Israel did, to be like all the other nations, a king who would fight their battles. And now they're face to face with the fact that what they're counting on doesn't work at all. And they know it. And they're without hope in the world. Have you ever been at that point where the thing that you were trusting in has been exposed as having no value whatsoever and all you can do is cower? There's no plan B. There's no other options. That's the story here. And God intervenes into that story. That's so important for us to see that as the framework. And I would uh, contend that when you actually look at this story, there are details in the story that show us that that's the way we're to read this. For instance, the story begins in a very kind of ordinary way. This is a story about God bringing a deliverance that was not looked for at all. Now, if you've been with us in our study in 1 Samuel, the study of the life of David, you see that one of the themes through this whole book is the deceitfulness of appearances. You remember God's people loved Saul as king because he was a head taller than everybody else. He was the impressive kind of guy that you would want to fight your battles. And then when Saul is rejected, Samuel the prophet sees David's older brother and says, aha, this must be the one God is going to call to be the king. Even God's prophet thinks that the impressive-looking guy is the one who surely will be the leader of God's people. And God says, no, not him, David, the handsome, ruddy little boy. Now, he's not a little, little boy, but he's certainly no match for Goliath. And he's certainly really even nothing compared to Saul or even his older brothers. And what's interesting is God's people are in this desperate condition, and yet God delivers them in really this almost comical way. This little boy takes lunch. I mean, it's the lunch delivery boy who ends up being used of God to deliver his people from this enemy that they have no hope of being able to defeat. David had no idea what would happen to him that day. He wasn't looking for this. I love the way the story tells it. He's there. He's talking to his brothers. The Philistine comes out as he had been doing every day for 40 days, defies God and his people. And it says simply, and David heard it. And everything changes when David heard it. David had no idea when he woke up that morning. And I would say to y'all, neither do you. Neither do you. But if God is at war with the serpent and you're in relationship with him, then there really are no non-combat zones in this world. There really are. You never know, you never know what this day will bring. Often, there are small little opportunities to honor God or to cover your butt. But every day, you know, John Piper said one time, life is war. That's not all it is, but it's always that. And that's important for us to remember. That's what this story is saying. On this ordinary day, this ordinary guy gets drawn into something huge. 
significant. Now, everybody remembers the action of this story, right? If I'd asked you to write down, tell me, remember, you know, as best you can remember the details of the story, tell me this story, write it down. I suspect most of you would write down the action and almost nobody would write down the speeches. But if you look at this passage, there is actually way more space devoted to the things that people say than the things that they do. That means that you're to pay attention. In biblical stories, people's words reveal their character. And they're worth paying attention to. This is a good example of that. For instance, when you look in verses 45 through 47, there's more space devoted to what David says than to what David does. Right? It's all about, you came against me. I mean, he spent, you know... It's one verse for what he actually does in in slinging the the stone at Goliath. It's three verses of what he says right before he does it. And that carries all through this passage. Why does that matter? Well, when we pay attention to the words, we discover some really important things. First, Goliath is described physically, particularly at the beginning, right? Right? He's an impressive specimen. But if you've been reading 1 Samuel, you probably are starting to get the point that it doesn't really matter what somebody looks like. If you read this story superficially, that's the thing that sticks out at you. Goliath is this huge, overbearing guy. But what does David say matters most about Goliath? That this Philistine is defying God and his people. Over and over again. As a matter of fact, one of the key words in this whole chapter is a word that that speaks about defiance or mocking. In different forms, it shows up six times. If you look at this text in the Hebrew, it keeps jumping out at you. There it is again. There it is. There it is again. The number one defining characteristic of Goliath is actually not his size, though that's certainly mentioned. But the thing that's mentioned over and over again is his defiance and his mockery of God and his people and his kingdom. He's bringing reproach upon God's name. That's the key thing that keeps being brought. As a matter of fact, he's not even always named, which is to say this one who brings derision and mockery on God's name isn't even worthy of being called by his name most of the time. Sometimes he's referred to simply as that Philistine. The story is about one who defies God and about how God's people are cowering rather than living for the glory and honor of his name. David is incensed about that. He doesn't come to the front lines and say, wow, they need some more soldiers, and I'm pretty good with a sling. Let me step up and take on this guy. That's not the story. The story is not David is thrust forward by these other people, which is sort of the way, like, if, if you're going to take this story as you're like David, then generally it's told, like, well, you know, sometimes there are giants in your life and you just got to go out and battle them. That's not the story. He's not put into this place. He takes this place, and he takes this place because he's incensed that no one will stand up for God's honor and the glory of his name. This is not a story about David even defeating Goliath. It really isn't. It's a story about what honor are we committed to defending. The idea that God would be mocked without consequence is abhorrent to David, and he cannot stand it. 
You look at this. Uh, look, in, uh, look back at the text here. Verse 26 and verse 45 are two good places to see this. In verse 26, because it's fascinating, you know, when some people describe it, and then you see the way David defi- describes it. Like the Israelites have been saying, you know, they're talking all about the reward that's going to happen, right? And David says, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? He doesn't just see it as a military threat. He sees this as a disgrace upon Israel. And if it's a disgrace upon Israel, it's a disgrace upon Israel's God. Look down in verse 45. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. He wants everybody to know the reason this is going down the way it goes is because this Philistine has defied God and brought dishonor upon his name. And God is calling David to stand. And it is worth at least thinking for a minute or two, does God's honor drive you in any way? See, all this language in the Bible about being part of a kingdom is the language of alliance and allegiance. And it's really hard to make much sense of the Bible if you don't see it this way. That's why Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. That's why Psalm 1 starts out that there are two ways to live. And the Bible says at another point that there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end leads to death. The idea of two ways or two kingdoms or two allegiances, and you have to choose is always there before us. And I think we don't understand. Sometimes we just think about trying, you know, what rules do we need to obey? Or what do we need to do to be a good Christian person? The first thing you need to understand is it's about allegiance, and it's about alliance, and it's about relationship, and it's about whose kingdom are you living for. And that is actually primary and even previous to questions about what does that actually look like in my daily life. We get it turned around all the time. We just want to ask, what should I do? What should I do here? What should I do there? What can I get away with here? Instead of thinking about who am I living for? The way Paul summarizes it so well, he goes, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. He doesn't say, look, God wants you to live this way with your body, and you really should. No, it's always stated in terms of alliance and allegiance because we're talking about a kingdom. And kingdoms always require you to be part of something bigger than yourself and your own personal preferences, right? That's fundamental to understand what Christianity is all about. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis where he brings out this idea. I didn't give it to you, but it's from Mere Christianity, page 92. He says, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. Either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war with and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven, that is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. He states it pretty starkly, but do you understand the point? That choices matter because choices are moving you in a direction. 
about allegiance, about honor. And if you get one thing tonight, it's don't think primarily of a Christian relationship in terms of rules, but in terms of allegiance, because we're called into a kingdom. We're not just called to follow a rule book. That doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't give us specific applications of what life within this kingdom should look like. But don't turn it upside down. Don't flip those two things over on themselves. What else do we learn as we look at this? Well, we learn that David is a man of zeal for Yahweh's honor. And, and again, it's, it's really ironic. David wants to make sure that we understand where his faith comes from. He says, Yahweh has delivered me, right? He doesn't say, I mean, he, he talks about, I've been able to defeat the bear and the lion. But what's the next verse he says? The God who delivered me from the bear and the lion will deliver me from this Philistine. David himself would be very disappointed if you thought the point of this story was David and his skill and his bravery. He wants to point you back to God who delivered him. You know, we sang uh, a line in Come Thou Fount, here I raise my Ebenezer. Do you know what that, that word refers to, that word Ebenezer? And Ebenezer is basically like a little monument that God's people made. When God had delivered them, they set up a little monument of stones to say, God has delivered us and brought us to this place, and therefore we can trust that he is with us and he will bring us through the next thing. That's what David is saying. I have an Ebenezer. There, as I was tending sheep, God delivered me. Therefore, I can face this Philistine who's defying God. Not because I'm so skilled. Not because I think I know a trick or two, and while he's not looking, I'm going to hit him in the head. No, because God delivered me. God delivered me. So this is why David's speech is given more space than the victory itself. The whole story is pushing you towards, do you believe the words he says? Do you believe that God is the one who will deliver his people? That's more important than the victory itself. David himself makes the point that the Lord saves not by human power, but through weakness. So beware of seeing David as the hero of the story. David himself would hate that. David himself would hate how this story is generally told to most kids. He would. God is the hero of this story, and David wants to make sure we get that. David's concern is that God not be mocked, but be honored. So you better make sure that the way you understand this story honors God rather than David. And that your response to the story is not, oh man, I need to try more to be like David. No, the point of this story is that you would understand the God who is able to save, not by human power, but through weakness. Because that is pointing to the fuller, fuller deliverance that is going to come through Jesus. See, David looks back to being delivered from the lion and the bears, and he takes that as an Ebenezer, and it sustains his faith. Gives him courage for the future. And we should do that too. But gosh, we can look back not just to David being delivered from lions and bears. But we can look back to the greatest deliverance the Lord has ever wrought for his people. The cross of Jesus. And as unlikely as David is, Jesus 
is even more unlikely. David didn't look impressive. But listen, Jesus died on a cross. Now, you've heard that so many times, it doesn't strike you the way it should. But God had told his people in the book of Deuteronomy, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And you know that that was still upsetting people even in Jesus' day because Paul, in the letter to the Galatians, has to take that verse up and say, look, if I'm telling you to believe in Jesus, that he was the promised Messiah, the one who would deliver us, i got to deal with this verse. Because all the Jews say, how can Jesus be the Messiah? He died on a cross. That means he was cursed of God. And Paul says he was. Absolutely. The, the point is he was cursed for us in our place. All those who broke the relationship with God and deserved the curse of the covenant, Jesus takes it for them. So while David might be unimpressive and not be wearing any armor, Jesus died on a cross, cursed of God. While Goliath taunted Israel, and Israel's God, Israel taunted Jesus as he hung on a cross dying. They said, he saved others, let him save himself. If he really is the Messiah, if God really loves him, He'd send angels to deliver him. Right? David's zeal took him into a dangerous battle. But Jesus' zeal for his father's cause took him to a cross. Saying, Father, not your will, but mine be done. You see, ultimately this is a story about trust. And all Christian stories are actually about that. About allegiance, about trust about kingdoms. Who can you trust? The Lord delivered us from all the enemies of hell at the cross. Surely he can deliver us today. Right? Are you driven by fear? Man, I meet so many people that are just driven by fear and anxiety. Anxiety is just sort of a way to try to overcome fear. You feel like if I just think about it enough, I'll figure out some way so that it doesn't happen. And of course, not only does it not help the future, but it robs the present of any joy. Right? It is meditation, actually, in a sense. It's just meditating on the absolutely wrong things. But how does the cross cut the heart out of fear? Martin Luther said it once. He said, I know not where he leads, but well do I know my guide. We spend so much time worrying, trying to figure out where he's going and where he's wanting to take us. And instead he says, I want you to know me. I want you to know me because your hope is in me, the one who delivers. Not in figuring it out. Who could have figured out that this is how God was going to deliver his people? Through a shepherd boy delivering lunch. Like nobody could have predicted that. But believe me, nobody could have predicted, nor could anybody easily believe that God would deliver his people through a Messiah who would be put to death on a cross. But he did it. He did it. So believe me, don't ever, don't ever think that God is limited by what you can imagine. So why do you spend so much time trying to imagine how things will get better? <laughs> right? You need to spend your time thinking about who is God, and that's what this story is about. It's about God is the one who delivers us in the most unlikely of ways through weakness rather than strength. 
Can you say to your lusts and your idols and all these things that promise to make your life more solid and more secure, can you say to them what David says to Goliath? Because your, your lusts and your idols and all your little things that you try to put your hope in that are not God are actually ways that he is defied. They're ways of robbing his honor. Now, I don't want you to walk out of here and just be like, oh, great, you know, I can't do anything right. I want you to walk out of here and say, give up. Give up trying to impress God. Put your hope in what Jesus did and not what you can do. It's your only hope. Jesus, you know, I love this place in, in Titus 2 when it says, talking about Jesus, it said, when the kindness of God appeared. Jesus is the kindness of God. And he's appeared and he's died and he wants to live with you. Let's pray.